We're about to spend $17 billion on political ads, and the future of our country depends on it. But does all of that spending even work? Matt Robeson, Beyond Politics, joined, as usual, by my co-host, former U.S. Congressman Paul Hodes, and delighted to be joined by John Halpin, who is the president and executive editor of The Liberal Patriot, a must-read substack. I, I mean it. I literally, I read it all the time. And he writes about U.S. politics and elections, ideology and public policy, a longtime senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. And John, you just wrote an article teeing up this Maybe the emperor has no clothes question. And so we really wanted to have you on to talk about it. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Um, I Yeah, I appreciate it. Not a lot of people have the bravery to go ahead and say out loud what I think a few of us have been thinking for a few years now. I actually, upon reading your article, which like I said, I read the Liberal Patriot almost every day, I, I went back into my archives and I discovered that I had drafted a similarly themed article back in 2021. And I went back and I looked at, I published about three dozen articles that, that year. I never published it. Maybe it's because I didn't have the bravery to say out loud what you did. It's you know, a good article. Thanks for sending it to me. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Maybe I, you should I publish it again. Yeah. Maybe I should try. Yeah. Yeah. Try again. Yeah. Um, so you start out your version of this yeah. by saying that analysts forecast the total advertising spending on U.S. elections and political advocacy campaigns in 2024 could be as high as $17 billion. And that would, here's a delicious fact, that would make American politics the 10th largest ad market in the world, surpassing all of Australia. And then you ask, but are political ads even marginally effective these days? So this is a bedrock article of faith among political operatives and campaign managers. Why on earth would you question it? If you're gonna spend that kind of money on politics, you would expect it to have some kind of known return. and. <clears throat> As with a lot of work in political communications, it's pretty opaque how effective any of it is. And cycle after cycle, as huge sums of money are first raised by small donors, big donors, foundations, others, political campaigns, and then spent to try and influence the elections. And obviously some of it works, particularly for people who have low name recognition or just getting started some lower level races, obviously where nobody knows who's there, you got to get your name out there. That stuff makes sense. But after Citizens United and the floodgate of dark money and the huge super PACs, you have to ask yourself, what good does a couple hundred million dollars in competing ads do for anybody anymore? And when's the last time you really remembered an ad? And part of it is television itself is not really where most people are doing politics, even though people still watch broadcast and things like that. But everyone's a sophisticated viewer now. You turn off the ads, you don't watch them. And with corporate advertising, it makes a lot of sense. You know what you're getting. If someone's trying to sell you beer or an, a car or an insurance company, you can at least evaluate what that person, that company says, their product, is it does it taste good? Do they have good rates? Things that you can easily evaluate if it works, you use that company, you buy their products and services. The biggest problem for politics is that no one believes anything the people making the ads are saying. And I, I don't have to tell you guys, unfortunately, public trust in institutions, particularly Congress, is about as low as it could possibly go, about 8% for Congress now. That's just pathetic, right? So if people running for Congress are trying to sell you something themselves, their vision or whatever, you're already starting at a deficit. So an ad is not going to change people's trust gap. And so the question becomes, is this even a, an effective form of politics? Now, as I said, it's hard to evaluate 
because you can ask people, do ads have an effect on you? And the data I have in that article says, most people say, no, it doesn't. The ad makers will tell you, no, that's because people have false consciousness. They don't understand how it affects them. And I might believe that on the margins, but no one can ever prove it. And you'll get stuff like, oh, this race moved half a point this week. It's all noise. And so I think because you can't empirically prove or disprove that's effective, it just continues. And the other thing that happens with ad spending, of course, is that it's basically sold to donors and candidates. Candidates like to see nice profiles on themselves or a good hit on somebody. Donors like to see what their money's getting. So you can kind of see why it goes on unimpeded cycle after cycle. But I think the smartest political strategists know that there are limits to this, that the best forms of political organizing are all, almost always person to person inside of small networks. I listen to you. I read what you, you tell me to read. It makes sense that people are tuning out of politics. We know that given the fractious tribalism and divisions. So clearly they might be tuning out political ads. Do you have any numbers that back up the idea that people are tuning out political ads possible to gauge that numerically, objectively? I'm sure that corporate research companies have ways of knowing who actually is watching things, particularly if they're watching it online, if it's streaming or something. The way we measure it and what I put into the article is self-reported impact or influence of advertising. And YouGov did an interesting test where they asked people, how much influence does advertising on television have on your vote? And this was asked back in 1986, and they re-asked it again in, in 2022. And the percentage of people who said it has no influence at all shot up to like six and 10. At most, you have maybe three and 10 people who say it has some influence on them. What would that influence be? If you don't know anything about an issue or a candidate, it's conceivable and plausible that advertising has an impact. That's assuming, one, people even see it. And this is the problem with some spending, particularly in lower-level races. No one has enough money to do what the big corporate ad firms do, which is saturate the market with what you see on sports, sports programs, right? Ad after ad on the same thing over and over again, right? And I had an interesting conversation with the head of a, one of the biggest insurance companies many years back about this issue of advertising. And he told me, he's like, look, advertising barely moves our margins in terms of brand recognition and even market share. The only way it works is if you completely flood the market nonstop with the same ads over and over again. And at that, you can best expect a fairly marginal increase in, in consumer behavior. That's a company that plans to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to get new customers every year. A political campaign at most is a couple of months, right? And you can't really sell people on that quickly. And so does it have an influence? Yes, it can. If you don't know somebody, you don't know an issue. It's not to say that it doesn't have an impact. But as the election gets closer, you know how it is, especially if you live in a swing state. Come September, October, those states are going to be flooded with presidential ads, Senate ads, House ads, state ledge ads, ballot initiative ads, just tons and tons of advertising that people maybe tune out or at a minimum just get confused by the competing claims. And who is this good for? The people buying, making, selling the ads are doing great, right? The television companies love it. They just make oodles of cash off of this. Does anyone really believe that any amount of advertising is going to change people's opinions about Joe Biden or Donald Trump? I think it's a tremendous waste, money that could be better spent doing actual hard on the ground political organizing rather than just saturating the airways with expensive ads.
Now, if you're running a Senate campaign and it's cheap to run some ads and you can get the whole state, of course you're going to do it. I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying minimize expectations that it's going to produce gangbuster results for you. And the bigger problem from the Democratic point of view, small d, is the content of these ads. And I think you all, you're both familiar with this. It's just a nonstop wave of negativity, right? And we mentioned already how much people hate politics. Guess what they're going to watch for the next seven, eight months? Nothing but negative ads. And it just makes people cynical. They tune out. They dislike politicians. They don't trust them. So if the goal is to improve people's perceptions of the candidates are voting for, the issues they're voting for, it's not doing a very good job. At least that's my take. My journey in this was I was a young congressional staffer, and then I was a young campaign manager, and I sort of, I listened to what the wise heads were telling me. It's like, this is what you do, this is what works, etc. And I engaged in a little bit of ex post facto motivated reasoning, specious, like, oh, here's an example of something that appeared. We had a good outcome, therefore, what I did must have worked. So for example, in 2012, I managed the congressional reelection campaign of the most under threat Democrat in the country. He was Stu Rothenberg's number one most likely to lose. And we won. And of course, after the fact, what happened was I started to wonder, what genius moves did I pull <laughs> that delivered us this victory? One of the things that I managed to do was sort of skin of my teeth. I helped arrange for former President Bill Clinton to do a robocall. That's where you get mm -hmm. home and you get to your answering machine or your voicemail on your cell phone, if the state allows that, and you get this automated message, hi, this is former President Bill Clinton. And it says something nice. And I was like, oh, maybe that's what put us over the line. Mm -hmm. And so I would have gone along if I had continued managing campaigns, thinking in the back of my mind, huh, I bet robocalls right before election day work in terms of motivating turnout, but without any evidence. So you can see how these things spool forward. And yet in 2020, and I sent you some of this, some of the work on this, when I started digging into the numbers, it was pretty stunning because Democrats overall outspent Republicans three to one in the presidential campaign and almost two to one on TV. And from a campaign management perspective, if you can outspend your opponents, especially down close to the wire, by that kind of a margin, just getting like a few percentage points of advantage is considered a coup. Mm -hmm. Outspending them two to one or three to one, you should be smacking them around. And obviously we know how 2020 turned out. And I have to say the same thing happened in 2016. After Labor Day, Hillary Clinton outspent Donald Trump three to one on TV. So anyway, all of that is in service of asking you, when did you start to get this feeling of, I wonder if this stuff is much less effective than we all take for granted? But the basic feeling, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how voters think. I have a background, a long history in public opinion work and campaigns and issue work. And I'm fascinated by how people make up their minds, the decisions they make, things of that nature. And so with the issue of advertising or any other type of politics, there's issues around mobilization and persuasion, right? And on the issue of persuasion, I'm not at all convinced that traditional advertising has much effect. I think you have to reach the kind of people who are undecided in a lot of these races that are where everybody's already made up their mind. And two, you have to imagine that one slick ad is going to finally make somebody change their mind one way or another. And I just don't see any evidence of that. 
I could be more persuaded that it has a, mo a mobilization fact that when you watch most ads, who gets the most ginned up about them and shares them? Supporters of the person that ran the ad, right? There's a hard hitting attack on the other party. Who shares that? All the people who really hate the other party. And so I, I can see how it has sort of a rally mobilization effect where you can imagine the same thing, like a Democrat getting a call from Bill Clinton. It's going it, to... Can you prove that it has an effect? No. Do you like it? Yeah, it's Bill Clinton. I mean, Democrats like Bill Clinton, or at least they did at one point. They did uh, at one point. <laughs> yeah. The mobilization factor makes a lot of sense to me. You have to go back and look at Hillary Clinton's campaign again. You're right. She outspent Trump. Trump was a master of not spending his own money, of getting free press. And when he did spend money, the ads were actually a little more memorable. So the famous one, Hillary wasn't really running in Wisconsin. Trump ran that ad really going after global elites. And it was like a populist. This is pre-Trump the way he is now, right? This was like, you don't know much about Trump. Oh, this guy's a populist fighter for workers. That ad may have been effective at the end of the campaign, a campaign in which Hillary wasn't campaigning in Wisconsin, right? And we know what happened in 2016. Can you prove that ad had an impact? No. It's part of a story about what the two campaigns were doing at the end of 16 that had an impact. Is that worth then replicating another couple hundred million dollars in spending? Probably not. I don't imagine that ads are going to go away. I think they may change over time, but it's hard not to see it as somewhat of a gravy trade for everyone involved. And I'm sure I know people in the industry won't say that because it's their livelihood, but they're not dumb. They understand that at best it has, they might have one or two ads a cycle that really matter. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Just to follow up on, on that point, I've logically reached sort of the same conclusion that, sure, lower level race on the margin in a really close race, maybe you can affect things by a few points. But just to throw some numbers out from the 2020 races at the congressional level, look at our old friend, Jamie Harrison, who I used to work with on the Hill, and now he occupies a somewhat important position in the political firmament. He outspent Lindsey Graham three to one on TV, three to one. Again, I can't underscore enough how from a campaign management perspective, getting that kind of a margin is just considered a hammer blow to the face. And he, Graham won with 54 and a half percent of the vote. He won by like 14 points. And remember, remember that campaign never closed the gap. Sarah Gideon in Maine, remember going after Susan Collins, she significantly outspent Susan Collins. She lost by nine points. Amy McGrath, Kentucky, in the House races, which is where I'm more familiar, Democrats didn't win in 2020. A single toss-up race, not a single one. And they outspent their opponents significantly across the board and in some races by wide margins. And this is way in the weeds, but... I will tell you that one advantage that Democrats have always had is that they tend to raise more money to their campaigns, while Republicans raise more money to outside entities, to super PACs. And you pay less as a campaign than you do if you're an outside entity, which means for the same dollar, you can get way more ads on the air. So when you see these spending numbers, they're underselling the case. Democrats were getting way more TV ads on the air. They still couldn't win any of the toss-ups. So again, it's just to underscore the point that we're talking about a vanishingly small effect if there is one. The other example that's, that's most recent and relevant, where you ask yourself, not only is it 
possibly a marginal effect, but is it counterproductive? One would be the $150 million that Ron DeSantis's super PAC just blew up on trying to trying to take on Trump. And it was just a it was just a failure, an epic failure. And it wasn't all just spending on advertising, but none of it worked, right? He tried to do stuff organizing in Iowa. None of it worked. The other one that that most interesting one that's potentially backfiring is this super PAC that put up the Bobby Kennedy Jr. ad, which immediately had his entire family like going after him again. Kennedy comes back and has to say, I didn't mean for this to go up. And it's like, did this do you any good? Some people would say, we got Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s name out there. People might consider him. But the discussion about the, the RFK Jr. ad is all entirely negative. So you have to ask yourself, was his money well spent or not? Maybe in the case of Kennedy, all he really wanted to do was put his name there because he's trying to get either the libertarian line or run independent. But with DeSantis, it's like everything he tried to sell, none of it worked. Haley's not making much progress either. She might have a few. She might have a future for herself in business or something like that, but she's not making any headway in politics. And part of it's not just advertising. I think part of this is also the entire structure and design of modern campaigns needs somewhat of a reboot or a rethink. People are just used to, you were mentioning, the media consultants come in and the pollsters, and you just sort of do the same thing over and over again, right? This is what we do. We tested the best hit in this poll. We'll put it into some mail. We'll put it up on the air. And it just happens cycle after cycle. In fact, some of the production value still looks antiquated. You see ads, it's the same thing. There's like a clip from the Washington Post that's superimposed and like a dark picture of somebody. They all look the same, right? Even as technology and video has gotten far more advanced, you see slicker ads self-produced by people on social media than you do from some of the professional staff. So you have to kind of wonder at what point will the campaign industry face some kind of repercussions. And it's not to be punitive towards anyone. It's like, don't you want to be effective? Don't you want to win races, persuade people, mobilize people? If you're never held to account and the gravy train just runs cycle after cycle, that won't happen. Hey, Paul, can I ask you a question? Because I'd love to lean on your experience as a candidate and as a member of Congress. I was hoping you could kind of bring the perspective of why do candidates sign up for the same old. And what I've tried to suggest to people is it's hard to imagine the position of the candidate where you're putting your name on the line, you're doing something very, you feel very naked and you're doing something very public and you're asking everyone you've ever met for more money than they can possibly afford to put it on you. And you're just under a tremendous amount of pressure. And it's not the time to go experimenting with your cockamamie ideas about what else might work. Let's for a moment go to the Wayback Machine. I'm thinking about 2006, and I'm in Nashua, New Hampshire. I'm in a car with my with some campaign folks. I get a call. They say it's Ron Manuel. I say, oh, great. I'll, I'll take it. So I talk to Ron. Ron is a brief and to the point. He says, and this is a podcast, so I can say all this. He says, Paul, I'm not fucking around. I say, okay, Rom, uh, what's up? You better be because I'm about to fucking spend fucking millions of dollars on you in Boston. So you better be serious about this. Oh, fuck it up. I said, okay, okay. Over the seven days before the election, Rom and the DCCC poured a couple of million dollars, which was big at the time. That was a lot of money onto Boston TV. It was a negative ad. And it actually 
we watched the needle move in the last week of the campaign. There was a good argument for advertising in a lower level race with a not very well-known Democratic candidate. Yes, catching a wave, but also watching the needle move. And he did that all over the country, which is why the class of 2006 was a historic win for Democrats in the House. But can I push you on that for a second? Because sure. here's the problem. We don't have a natural experiment here. And what we don't know is what if we could go to the multiverse and try a version of this where Rom never spent the money at all? Because I'll tell you what the scuttlebutt was in Democratic like operator circles. It was, yeah, we think Hodes was going to win that race. This is seriously what they were saying at the DCCC. We think Hodes was going to win that race anyway. But we think that maybe it had a little bit of a margin, marginal impact in the other district with Carol Shea Porter, who won in a squeaker that year too. Like maybe all the negative advertising and all the reminding people about George W. Bush, maybe that's what put her over the line. Does anyone know? No. And that's the point, I think, is we, we, we walked away with a lesson that it probably worked, but we don't know that. Right. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt. I want to take a quick moment to let you know about a podcast that should be familiar to many of you. It's called Talk in Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. The host of that show, the outstanding Corey Nathan, was just a guest with me. He's trying to do the same kind of thing that we're doing here, have reasonable deep, smart conversations with the kinds of people you want to hear from. David Brooks and Jennifer Rubin and Adam Kinzinger, Larry Wilmore of The Daily Show, John Popper of Blues Traveler. I, I got to stop talking about this. I'm, I'm getting jealous. Subscribe, follow, talk in politics and religion without killing each other. Links right in the show notes and help both of us add a little bit more nuance, intelligence, and understanding to American politics. I can't argue, except I won. And then I did it again in 2008, and I also won. Fast forward, here we are, many years later now. Social media back then was not what it is now at all. And now we have ads on social media. We have the tribalism we have. And the ultimate question is, so you've got According to John, three in 10 adults in 2022 agree that negative advertising helps them learn something about candidates. But the question I have is, what about the cumulative effect of waves of competing negative advertisements? If you think about politics in the 90s or even the first, first 10 years of the 2000s, and this is before social media really takes off. And it's possible more people watching television or listen to the radio and a good, well-placed and well-saturated ad could have some marginal effect, particularly if it's a well-designed negative one that fills in some information for voters who don't know something about an opponent. You can easily make, you can easily see how that might have an impact. But what's also happened now is that the parties are so split and Americans are so split, there's a national context to all elections anymore. And the idea that you're going to move minute levels on an individual person. All the consultants want you to believe that you can. We can always sell our individual candidate versus somebody else. But we're now, you mentioned the two to one spending advantage in the House, and, we didn't, and the Democrats didn't do very well in 2020, right? And in the House, they didn't, right? Even though they won the presidential. Same thing may happen this year. There, It may just be so locked in that it's a Trump-Biden battle. It's like neck and neck. It's going to be like 50,000 votes in three states or something like that. Is anything really going to change the outcome in the House? There's such a small lead. It might flip the House, right? 
And then people will say our ads were helpful there. Or maybe it was just like pro-democratic mobilization overall that helped. I don't know. Money continues to flow because people are like, it could be this. So let's raise another couple hundred million dollars to spend ads when it's actually possibly more effective to shape the national context. And Paul, you asked about social media. It costs nothing to produce a really good meme, right? If you think about the dark Brandon meme, right? That shows up. He just did that with the Super Bowl. None of that's going to persuade people to vote for Biden who are skeptical of him, but it was a good rallying point for Democrats, right? And it probably had the same impact as if they had spent a bunch of money on advertising in some way. You read the thing in the New York Times today, they did a focus group with like 13 undecided voters. And it's like, I don't know how anybody's going to reach them. They had just a range of Biden's old and Trump's sort of onto this. And there's no rhyme or reason to any of their doubts about the two candidates or the decisions that they're going to make. I'm working on another article right now that picks up on what I think is the most important number in politics. And a pollster said it on this show a few months ago. He had done some previous work and he had established in that work that most people in, in, in the group he was studying spent an average of 10 minutes a week absorbing some kind of political news. 10 minutes. That is a shock. I'm going to spare people math. That is a small tenth of a percent of people's time. And this accounts for the fact that the majority of Republican voters are unaware of the fact that Donald Trump has been indicted. For all that political insiders like us focus on these kinds of things, it is washing over the vast majority of people. And that's with all of the media attention on it. All of the punditry sphere losing their minds about the special counsel saying Joe Biden is old and he has a failing memory. I feel like I'm taking crazy pills, but this doesn't matter. It's not going to matter. In 10 months when people are voting, it's not going to matter. Okay, that said, I want to turn to maybe the most important part of the discussion. I was actually thinking a few years ago a lot about this topic that you've teed up, John. And I actually had some offline conversations, including with the author of the book, The Victory Lab, which is the most comprehensive examination of what works and what doesn't in political campaigns. And I was saying, like, I might want to write a real deep follow-up to this. Mm -hmm. And he was like, look, here's the thing. If you're going to do that, you got to present some solutions. You've got to be able to address the, okay, if you're not spending money on this, what else should you spend it on? Mm -hmm. So I'm going to put you on the spot, John. What else, if you were talking to the Biden campaign right now and you're like, look, you've got a billion bucks to spend here, where else should they consider putting their money? It's an interesting question. And I've got a piece coming out tomorrow about all politics has now turned into media criticism. That's all anybody does is just media criticism. I don't like the way this is covered. And when I was doing this piece, I was thinking back to just imagine a time before the kind of crazy fractured media world we have and social media and all of that. How did politics actually operate? It was an arduous task of like smart organizers informing, educating small groups of people about issues, parties, candidates, how they would affect their immediate economic interests and their values, right? And elites spent their time arguing about the ideas and larger forces that were shaping politics. This is if you don't have an easy distribution network like social media or a bunch of money to spend on advertising, you had to do it through small 
person-to-person contact. And I think the Obama campaign, because he came out of the organizing world, understood this. There wasn't a whole lot of message in the 20, in the 2000 comprehensive message. It was like hope and change, right? What he did was or, allow people, particularly younger people and others, to kind of run their own show. Like, you're in charge of this neighborhood. We really need you to be in charge of your peer group and to make sure you get them out to vote and that they're excited. And it gave people the task. It became a form of political education and organization. And I'm not being nostalgic saying, let's go back to the old ways of doing things, but do you need to do anything more than like put up billboards or just have your name on places like that for name recognition for advertising? Probably not. What you need to do is meet with people. And the Democratic Party, unfortunately, in a lot of states has no presence. And the voting base there doesn't want to hear from Democrats. They don't hear from them. Or if they do, it's the college kids in the college towns, right? They're Mm. not in the rural counties. They're not in the small towns, things like that. So again, I guess I would use the theory of Howard Dean and Barack Obama, which is people make the best political campaign expenditures. And you can waste money on hiring staff that's basically just retweeting each other or commenting online, or you can hire a lot of local people long-term, not just one cycle, to actually be, to represent and know the places where they live and work and go to school, uh, where they worship. They know people there and they have a presence. And it's an older form of politics that I think is missing because everyone just assumes, oh, we'll just put up some clever stuff on social media, run a couple hundred million dollars in ads. I think it's better than trying to manipulate people with expensive ads that don't make any sense. I would also caution, I understand the impulse to like hammer January 6th over and over again. This is another thing where we don't know the answer. What happens when you show that day in, day out, which they're going to do, they're going to saturate the airwaves with pictures of the of that January 6th. Is that going to Is that going to help in the fight against Trump? Or is it going to make people kind of immune to the whole thing? It's like, oh, here we go again. I don't know the answer to it. I'm sure they think it will have the impact they desire, which is to motivate enough college-educated suburban voters to remind them that they hate Donald Trump and vote Democrat. I could see that wisdom, but I can also seeing it not having any impact at all. When it comes down to it, it's a somewhat of a popularity contest and Biden's character is better than Trump's. You don't need to exaggerate the point or overstress it. It's there. What you need to do is convince people who are skeptical that you've done anything successful for the past four years, that if you give me another four years, I'm gonna stand up for you and your job and your family and the cost you face and all those things. Here are my values. Here's what we're gonna do. Here's what we did. And the implicit contrast with Trump is there. It sounds good to me, and I have a sneaking suspicion that faced with such a cataclysmic choice, with so much on the line, they're probably going to just go with what seemed to work in the past. I like your prescription better, though. All right, we got to get you out on that. John Halpin, The Liberal Patriot, people can check it out. It's a good read. It has perspectives that you don't necessarily get in other places. And it it prompted this entire conversation. John Halpin, thank you so much for being on Beyond Politics. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it.